Welcome to the 122nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with James Lee Burke, New York Times bestselling author of the Dave Robichaux Mystery Series. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling writer James Lee Burke. Burke is the author of the long-running and critically acclaimed Dave Robichaux Mystery Series. The latest book in the series, the 20th Dave Robichaux novel, Light of the World, was published today and is available in bookstores everywhere. Burke also writes a separate series featuring Sheriff Hackberry Holland. Burke's novels have twice won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for the Best Mystery Novel of the Year. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jeff, for having me on your program. I surely appreciate it. Sure, sure. Can I have you read the first couple of pages from your new novel, Light of the World? Uh, yeah, I'd, just, I'd, I'd be happy to. Hang on. Uh, this novel is narrated by Dave Robichaux. He's a police officer uh, in New Iberia, Louisiana, where both Jeff and I used to live, and Jeff interviewed me many years ago, and it's very nice to be on your show today. Thank you. Uh, chapter One. I was never good at solving mysteries. I don't mean the kind cops solve or the ones you read about in novels or watch on television or on a movie screen. I'm not talking about the mystery of creation either or the unseen presences that reside perhaps just the other side of the physical world. I'm talking about evil, without capitalization, but evil all the same, the kind whose origin sociologists and psychiatrists have trouble explaining. Police officers keep secrets, not unlike soldiers who return from uh, from foreign battlefields with the syndrome that survivors of the Great War called the thousand-yard stare. I believe that the account of the apple taken from the forbidden tree is a metaphorical warning about looking too deeply into the darker potential of the human soul. The photographs of the inmates at Bergen-Belsen or Andersonville Prison are the bodies in the ditch at My Lai disturb us in a singular fashion because those instances of egregious human cruelty were committed for the most part by baptized Christians. At some point, we closed the book containing photographs of this kind and put it away and convinced ourselves that the events were an aberration, the consequence of leaving soldiers too long in the field are letting a handful of misanthropes take control of a bureaucracy. It is not in our interest to extrapolate to larger meaning. Hitler, Nero, Ted Bundy, the bitch of Buchenwald, their deeds are not ours. But if these individuals are not like us, if they do not descend from the same gene pool and have the same DNA, then who were they? and what turned them into monsters. Every homicide cop lives with images he cannot rinse from his dreams. 
Every cop who has handled investigations into child abuse has seen a side of his fellow man he never discusses with anyone. Not his wife, not his colleagues, nor his confessor or his bartender. There are certain burdens you do not visit on people of goodwill. When I was in plain clothes at the NOPD, I used to deal with problems such as these in a saloon on Magazine Street, not far from the old Irish Channel. With its brass-railed bar and felt-covered bure tables and wood-bladed fans, it became my secular church where the Louisiana of my youth, the green, gold, mossy, oak-shaded world of Bayutesh, was only one drink away. I would start with four fingers of Jack in a thick mug with the sweating Budweiser back, and by midnight I would be alone at the end of the bar, armed, drunk, and hunched over my glass, morally and psychologically insane. I had come to feel loathing and disgust with the mythology that characterized the era in which I lived. I didn't serve in Southeast Asia. I survived and watched innocent people and better men than I die in large numbers while I was spared by a hand outside myself. I didn't serve and protect while as a police officer. I witnessed the justice system's dysfunction and the government's empowerment of corporations in the exploitation of those who had no political voice. And while I brooded on all that was wrong in the world, I continued to stoke the furnace inside me with Black Jack and Smirnoffs and Five Star Hennessy and finally two jiggers of scotch inside a glass of milk at sunrise constantly suppressing my desire to lock down on my enemies with the 45 automatic I had purchased in Saigon's brothel district and with which I slept as I would a woman. My real problem wasn't the militarization of my country or any of the other problems I've mentioned. The real problem went back to a mystery that had beset me since the destruction of my natal home and family. My father, Big Al Du, was on the monkey board of an offshore drilling well when the drill bit punched into an early pay sand and a spark jumped off the well head and a mushroom of flaming oil and natural gas rose through the rigging like an inferno ballooning from the bottom of an elevator shaft. My mother, Alifair May Gilry, was seduced and blackmailed by a gambler and pimp named Mac, whom I hated more than any human being I ever knew, not because he turned her into a barroom whore, but because of the Asian men I killed in his stead. Rage and bloodlust and alcoholic blackout became the only form of serenity I knew. From Saigon to the Philippines, from Chinatown and Los Angeles to the drunk tanks of New Orleans, the same question haunted me and gave me no rest. Were some people made different in the womb, born without a conscience, 
intent on destroying everything that was good in the world? Or could a black wind blow the weather vane in the wrong direction for any of us and reshape our lives and turn us into people we no longer recognized? I knew there was an answer out there someplace if I could only drink myself into the right frame of mind and find it. I stayed 90 proof for many years and got a bachelor's degree in self-immolation and a doctorate in chemically induced psychosis. When I finally entered sobriety, I thought the veil might be lifted and I would find answers to all the Byzantine riddles that had confounded me. That was not to be the case. Instead, a man who was one of the most wicked creatures on earth made his way into our lives. This is a tale that maybe I shouldn't share, but it's not one I want to keep inside me either. Great. <laughs> well, thanks. If someone hasn't heard about Light of the World yet, how would you describe your new Dave Robichaud novel? Well, it's set in Montana, and it deals with um, Dave's encounter with a psychopath, a man who's genuinely evil, and he's certainly the darkest figure I've written about. He's an allegorical figure, actually. Um, the larger themes in the novel have to do with preservation of the earth, and uh, themes that I've written about for many years, and also... Um, I think it's an unusual book in that it journeys far into the past, to the 3rd century A.D. in the Roman arena at Carthage in northern Africa, where two women named Felicity and Perpetua, early Christian saints, were put to death in the arena by the emperor Geta, who was the brother of Caracalla. And... Uh, <clears throat> It's a story of their mom, of, of these two women, in retrospect, but their counterparts in modern times, who in the book become Alifair and a, a lady named Felicity from New Orleans, a contemporary Felicity. And it's a, it's a, a very unusual book in that regard. <laughs> I'm not very objective. <laughs> so, so that's a great book. <laughs> that, that's fine. That's fine. So, so I'm curious in terms of the in terms of the Roman plot. How, how much research did you did you have to do, or was that a story that you were familiar with already, and that kind of came to hand when you were ready to write this book? Yeah, I, the latter. That's correct. I. I've known the story of Felicity and Perpetua many years. It's an extraordinary story because Felicity and Perpetua, who were put to death with three three other Christians in the arena for the amusement of this degenerate character, uh, they left behind the only first-person written account of the ordeal that all these people went through uh, at the hands of cruel men like uh, Caracalla and any number of them, or Marcus Aurelius even. Uh, and it was horrible what they went through. And I think, I, I hope this book reminds people, it's just one theme in it, but I hope it reminds people of the importance of women in the early Christian church. 
And that role has been forgotten. They've been pushed to the back of the bus. That's interesting. These are extraordinary women. Uh-huh. Well, well, I know that Light of the World is, is longer than most Dave Robichaux novels. When, when did you know it was going to be so long? Did the story just kind of unfold for you? Yeah, it did. It was 930 pages in the script. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the longest and most ambitious work I've undertaken. And, uh, it printed out at 560 pages. They're big big pages with lots of words on it. Right. And and when you're when you're working in terms of your writing process, um when when you sit down to to start writing a, a a new novel like Light of the World, how much of the story is there for you or 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 do you do you just kind of take each day as it comes and 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 the story unfolds? I'm just curious about the the actual process of, you know, are you are you plotting ahead? Are you making notes? How does that work for you? That's a good question. It's a good answer. You answered it. He must be looking <laughs> over my shoulder. That's, that's that's how for me it's done. That people, different people, write different ways. But I've always subscribed to the notion: the story is already written. It's in the unconscious, and it's a matter of incremental discovery. Uh, Leonardo once said he did not carve his sculptures. He released the figures from the granite and the marble. It's a great line. It's a great metaphor. Uh, and I, I write seven days a week. I start in the morning, and I, I'm at it till after 10 at night. I don't work all through the day, but I work on and off all day. But I do it all the time, and I do nothing else. And I have a, you know, other work I have to do on the one I'm place it tries to be a ranch but uh it's a great life i love the life of a writer and i never wanted to be anything else and we did lots of other things you know my wife and i've been married 53 years we worked and lived everywhere and um i have a great family and you know we have four wonderful children and that's uh, great I feel very fortunate so, <laughs> so way, uh, i'll go ahead no, I say they have contributed a lot to uh, the six, the degree of success my work has had. That's great. Well, I, I, it it occurred to me as you were reading um, earlier. Do you read aloud when you're writing at all? Oh yeah, I, and it's you know there's an old lesson every writer learns: keep your your office door closed. Don't let people see you because they'll think you're crazy <laughs> talking to yourself and shouting out things or acting out things, falling onto the floor with a ruler through your heart, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but but laughing at one's own humor. But, uh, the characters are all there. I've always maintained a good writer is a good listener. And the story and the dialogue are all around us. It's just a matter of recognition and hearing. The, the greatest lines in the world come from the most humble sources. I, I remember a lesson I learned. I used to work on the pipeline. I was a pipeliner, and I was going to work uh, downtown in Houston. Uh, and I was on a bus at that time. This was 1960. The buses were segregated, and I was sitting right in front of two black women. 
and they were talking, and one woman said to the other, it surely did get cold last night when that sun go down. And I thought about it. The people of color use iambic cadence in their language. Every other syllable is accented. St. Louis woman with all your diamond rings. In other words, they use Shakespearean English. There's a melodic content in their language that often is lacking in the language of people who are considered more sophisticated in their speech. But secondly, they always make use of tactile images. They use an image rather than an abstraction. And uh, I, I grew up around people of color and, and people who had to struggle. You know, I was born in the Depression. But I always trusted what they said. They saw the world as it is because they had to in order to survive. Every artist learns that. Wordsworth talked about that. And in terms of in terms of what you just described, uh, I think it I think it kind of speaks to some of your you know your personal kind of unique style of your writing, where um, the 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 senses are 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 there in in, in all of your descriptions, um, not only of your characters but a lot of the setting as well, especially the 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 bayou and 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 the sounds and the smells and the 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 sights. Was that always there when you started writing, or is it something as you just said? I mean, you're you're listening to people talk and and you kind of work towards that style. Well, uh, it's something that happens by itself. And again, that's a very good question. As you suggest, it's an eclectic process. And the admonition is never read the work of poor or bad writers. It's like, you know, the expression, don't watch bad tennis. If you play tennis, you don't watch a bad player because it will mess up your game. In other words, many things have to do with conception and concentration and art is one of them you don't want intrusions into your life like reading junk and i think oftentimes well this is where i, I, I don't want to denigrate the writer you know they're doing what they do and, and that's great but jack kerouac said something once that i never forgot he said someone asked him who are the writers you, you like? And he said, I like them all. He said, anyone who invests himself in his art will never write a perfect work. In effect, he will write a failure, and then he will do it over and over and over again. But the measure is not whether it's perfect or not. The measure is one's investment in his art. And Robert Frost called the same process a lover's quarrel with the world. Boy, that's a great line. And George Orwell talked about this. He said, every writer is governed by a vanity. Every writer feels that he sees the truth in an exquisite way, and he has to tell other people about it. He can't rest till he writes it down. You know, when you interviewed me years ago, I, I don't want to rob you of your humility with, with flattering with flattery <laughs> it's a fact you interviewed me in 1992 and you struck me because of your humility 
number one. And secondly, your love of what you were doing. And you, I, know, I didn't tell you this at the time, but you reminded me of myself. Oh, thank you. That's very flattering. <laughs> well, but you, I could tell it. You loved what you were doing. And you were telling me about this murder case you were uh, starting to investigate. I think it happened in Jenner after Jennings, and you were telling me about it. But I thought, this guy's got it because he has the love of it. That's the difference. People That's often ask, well, you, you know, you, you've made some money or blah, blah, blah. And, well, I have, but <clears throat> writing is like the oil business. It's either gushers or dusters. <laughs> and most of the time, it's dusters. <laughs> that, that's a good quote. <laughs> but, but I would never do anything this hard for money. Well, well let, let, let's, let's talk about that because I, okay. it, it kind of leads into my next question. You, you've talked in many of your interviews about how you published three novels earlier in your career in the late 60s and, and, and early 70s. And then your fourth novel, The Lost Get Back Boogie, was rejected more than 111 times. Yeah. And, and, and I know you've talked about that experience um, before. Um, but I, I'm I'm curious. Can you still remember those years, the, those many years that you went without having a novel published? And 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 if you can, what what kept you going back to the typewriter every day? Well, th that's a, a, a great question again, because you got it. It's you wonder when you go through those periods, particularly if they're in the middle of your career. It's like being. Uh, broke twice and, excuse me, being rich twice and going broke three times. <laughs> <laughs> but I went 13 years in the middle of my career when I couldn't sell ice water in Hades. And it was, it was, I, I amassed hundreds of rejection slips. I used to keep them in a cardboard box. And I was told myself, one day I'm going to autograph all these and sell them. <laughs> but the rejections were just sometimes awful, and particularly the Lost Get Back Boogie. It, that manuscript was not just rejected. It was flung at me with a catapult. It was vandalized. <laughs> it did. It had what looked like stab marks on it from ballpoint pens and rings where somebody had set, you know, his whiskey glass along the margins. But I had to have the whole thing retyped <laughs> finally. <laughs> but it made people mad for some reason. <laughs> and finally, LSU Press you know, brought it out, and it was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. But the point is, I, had, I relearned a lesson that I, I knew that I had learned as a young man and had forgotten. You do it every day for the pleasure and the love of writing. And of being a player, you're part of the action. It's like shooting craps. You just keep rolling the dice and, you know, box cars and snake eyes come up and then finally you throw in elevens and sevens. It's a matter of time. But I learned that lesson when I was 20 years old and I was sending off my first short stories and I worked for a little while on an offshore exploration barge, uh, uh, what's called the doodlebug rig. And I worked 10 days on the water, five days off. When I'd get off the hitch, I would put all my, my I'd write for five days back on the shore. 
And then I'd put all my work in the mail and send it to magazines. I had a rented post office box. My rejections would be waiting for me when I got off of the next hitch. But I learned a lesson. You never give up. And I never keep a manuscript at home longer than 36 hours, a day and a half, and it's back under submission. You just wear them down, and you don't (laughs) keep score. You know, a Franciscan theologian told me this. Don't keep score, Jim. He said, the score will take care of itself. Bear down on the batter one pitch at a time, and toward the bottom of the ninth, look over your shoulder, and you'll be pleasantly surprised at the arithmetic on the scoreboard. I never forgot that statement. That's it. You just never quit. I call it Richard Nixon syndrome. You just keep <laughs> hanging around. And finally someone says, oh, give the guy the White House. <laughs> <laughs> so so after that long drought, what, what eventually led you to writing the first Dave Robichaud novel, The Neon Rain? What, why did you decide to write a mystery novel? Um, I'd been out of print all those years, and... I forget how many stories and novels I had written during that time. And I was fishing with this writer friend of mine named Rick DeMarinas. And he said, Jim, you've written every other kind of novel. Why don't you try a crime novel? He said, if you write two good chapters, you can probably get an advance. And three days later, we were fishing in the Bitterroot River here. And three days later, my wife and I were in San Francisco and I, I walked down by Ferlin Getty's bookstore, City Lights bookstore, mm-hmm. and I bought a yellow legal pad and went oh, about a half block away to it. a little Italian restaurant across the street from a Catholic church. It a park and outdoor tables and espresso and hippie kids all over the place. Wonderful ambiance. And I sat down. And I started writing the first chapter of In the, ne- the, the Neon Rain in longhand. And I knew it. I knew it right then. I said, that's it. And I knew that that book was going to change everything. And I sent my first two chapters to Charles Williford, the crime writer, who's an old friend of mine. And Charles mm-hmm. wrote me back. And these were his words. I think you have created a character who may be may become one of the most memorable in American literature. Wow. (laughs) Charles Charles was a stand-up, armor-plated, (laughs) rock-solid, heck-on-wheels guy. You know, he he was a tank commander during World War II. I just loved Charles. He had the Silver Star. He he was at uh, Arnheim. He took his tank behind German lines, and 23 grunts got trapped behind German lines. He piled 23 guys on his tank and took them home. He received the Croix de Guerre and the Silver Star. He never made anything of his military career, his war. He never wrote one line about his war experiences. Interesting. Yeah, so, so time. Dave Robichaud, your your popular character, which you just talked about, um, writing those first couple of chapters, and that's that's such a great memory. And uh, sitting in San Francisco, reading writing those initial chapters. But you, Dave Robichaud is is a recovering alcoholic, and and I know that you have talked about 
um, yourself uh, of dealing with alcohol uh, alcoholism. Did, did you ever have any reservations when you started writing about alcoholism in your novels? Well, I think the books, I, I, this is what other people say. I, I received lots of mail, both um, hard copy mail and, of course, email today mm-hmm. from people who say that the, the books have helped them greatly in recovery from alcoholism and problems with alcohol in general and more seriously alcoholism, which is, you know, uh, problems with alcohol can be solved by putting <laughs> The cork in the bottle. Alcoholism <laughs> is uh, you know, much more complex. But right. It always makes me feel good that maybe the books helped others in some way. That's great. That's great. Well, I I know that in your novels, your your plots and and um, often your characters discuss the the current political and economic system in the U.S. and and you often point out the the cost of the system for especially people at the bottom of the 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 socioeconomic um, ladder. Um, and I know, as you're painfully aware, we're we're at a point in in the American political system where the divisions between politicians and 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 people um, are are so strident. Um, I know one issue that that often comes to my mind is is when some of the grieving parents for the kill the the kids in the Newtown tragedy, where they were yelled at and ridiculed by people who had strong political beliefs about the Second Amendment. Um, I wonder. I wonder what goes through. Um, uh, you know, what, what's your thinking? Um, because I know it's something that you think about. What is your thinking about American politics um, as it stands today? Or do you see anything that's hopeful? Or where do we go from here? That's a great question. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure where or how we're going to come out on the other end of the juncture where I believe we're standing now. I think we're at a crossroads in history. I think you're absolutely correct. We're in the vortex, and when you stand in the middle of a vortex, you're in the eye of the storm, and there's a kind of tranquility while the rest of the world is swirling around you. Um, My own feeling is that we entered another era uh, with Vietnam. We entered uh, into a time that was terrible. We, we allowed ourselves to be led into a commitment which seems to have become open-ended as a new foreign policy, namely what is post-neocolonialism. It's my perception, this is just one guy's opinion, that we're walking in the footprints of the British and the French in the same sand, and we'll come to the same end as they. Unfortunately, we don't have their experience as imperialists. And the consequence, though, I think will not be good. And my father uh, was a student of history, and he was a very prescient man. And as such, he was often a lonely man. Other people didn't listen to (laughs) some of the things that he said, but he used to say, and he said this right at the close of World War II, I'm just hearing in our living room, I'll never forget what he said. He said, this will be the future. He said, we will die the death of a thousand cuts, 
It will be a neo-colonial commitment that will do this to us. The consequence will be that ultimately we'll withdraw to our own shores. Our foreign policy will be uh, simply a return to the Monroe Doctrine, and it will be a foreign policy based on weakness, not on strength, and we will be destroyed from within. I'll never forget his words. I was just you know, a little boy, but I always remembered those words. I never, that's one sentence. He put all of that in one sentence, 1945. But I think that's where we are today. And uh, I think what, what troubles me most is that there's a self-deception going on in our country, and we have willingly participated in it. And the burden of these wars uh, is placed on those who have the least in our society. And we put stickers on our cars, support the troops. But if this is an honorable uh, endeavor, then I feel that everyone between 17 and 70, starting with me, should have to contribute to it. We should all have to serve. I mean, in uniform and in aid stations and burn wards, all of us should be there. And to put a decal on our car is somehow a surrogate for that lack of commitment is dishonorable. I don't mean the people who put decals. These are family members. I'm not criticizing them. What I'm criticizing is the mentality that, in effect, has been created by manipulative politicians who know exactly what they're doing and that the in, the issue here has nothing to do with freedom or nationalism. It has everything to do with extractive resources. That has been the issue since 1914. When T.E. Lawrence wrote The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he talked about this. This was the issue in World War One in World War II, and it's the issue now. It's energy. And the, the issue in Pakistan and Afghanistan are the pipelines. The only conduit for uh, oil and natural gas out of South Central Asia is either through Afghanistan, across Pakistan, to the refineries in India, or the pipelines have to go through Iran, and nobody wants to do business with these guys. It's that simple. And no one ever asked the question, why did the Soviet Union literally destroy itself in a war in a third world nation that was virtually in the Stone Age? If the issue was simply just occupying a country with nothing but rocks and people who, my God, have the most primitive society on earth and who think opium growing is a viable national industry, they destroyed themselves over that worthless piece of real estate. Why? Well, it's had nothing to do with Afghanistan. It had to do with reaching markets with their huge supply of oil and natural gas. But that's the issue. And uh, until, look, a friend of mine put it well once. He said, these guys, the guys who make things, the guys who run things, <laughs> they fought with government for years. 
They fought with Teddy Roosevelt, who was the big trust buster. And then they learned a lesson. Don't fight with government, just take over it. And that's what they did. We had oil men and CIA men running the United States government, and they pulled it off, brother. They did it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> look, I used, I used to be a landman for Sinclair Oil Company. I worked in the oil patch. My daddy was a, oil, was a natural gas engineer all his life and died on the job. I'm not criticizing the people who were the grunts on the ground. They're the bravest people I've ever known. They're absolutely fearless, and they're admirable in every way. The guys who run those companies are none of those things. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> and anyone who believes differently, I'd like to talk to them because I've got I have some underwater property in Louisiana. <laughs> I'd like to d- discuss selling them. Yeah, some they might some costume jewelry. They might like. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so to to shift, <laughs> so to, to shift gears a little bit. Given all of your success to date with your with your writing and and, and your books, um, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening who would one day like to sell their own novels or short stories? Um, the same thing I said. Number one, a person has to remember the following: if he really believes in his art. He should never let anyone discourage him. It's a votive gift. I believe it comes from a power outside of ourselves. And if that's true, if this gift has been given us, it's for a reason. And eventually we'll see that reason made manifest in our lives. And it's just a matter of time. Eventually, the right person is sitting behind the right desk when your story or your novel or your poem goes across the guy's ink water. And in the meantime, you just write every day for the pleasure of it. And I met Irving Stone when I was only 19, you know, the fellow who wrote The President's Lady and Lust for Life. And he came to University of Louisiana. Uh, where I attended school there in Lafayette. And he met with about nine or ten of us kids. You know, it was a poor boy college back then. It was Southwestern Louisiana Institute then. And um, he was such a gentleman. He was a very genteel and well-spoken but humble man. And someone asked him the question, Mr. Stone, shouldn't you make some concessions? Shouldn't you write for money? He said, oh, don't do that. If you ever write a story to pay your utility bill, be assured your gas and your lights will be turned off soon. (laughs) He said, write for the love of your art. And he said, money and fame will find you of their own accord. It's a great line. That was 1956. I still remember it. That's great. So what what are you working on now? Have you started another novel yet? Yeah, it begins in 1934. It's uh, about a member of the Holland family. And it goes from there. It begins with Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, a guy named Raymond Hamilton and his girlfriend who show up at the Holland house in 1934, just before they're killed over in Arcadia, Louisiana. 
And uh, it goes from there to the Ardan Forest, Battle of the Bulge in 1944. And then it goes from there to the discovery of uh, oil out in the Gulf of Mexico, south of Louisiana coast. It may be my best book. It's quite a book. That's great. That's great. So uh, I'm curious, I mean, going back to, to kind of your, your writing process, um, and you said, you know, when you start working on a book, you, you do it seven days a week. Um, how long do you usually wait between books? I mean, is it something where you, you know, give yourself a, a few weeks or a month or two to, to recharge the batteries? Or do you, do you get right back into another one? I'm just curious. It's only, only have about, as a rule, about two weeks downtime. That's about it. And 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 when you when you when you finish one, are you already starting to think about the next one in your head? Yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions that I had. Did you have anything that you wanted to to mention that we haven't talked about? Well, no. I wanted to say you you conduct a really good interview, Jeff, and uh, yeah, it's very professional, and you're always respectful of your your guests and. Uh, you do a great job at it. I, if you ever need recommendations or introductions <laughs> to other writers, you know, let me know. It's been Thank a pleasure. You. Thank you. Thank we'll, you. I, I, I appreciate that. Well, again, we've been speaking with James Lee Burke, the New York Times bestselling writer of the Dave Robichaux novels. Burke's latest novel, Light of the World, is available in bookstores now. So definitely grab a copy. And Jim, thanks a lot for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.